0: Welcome to the Inspiring Social Entrepreneurs Podcast. My name is Fergal Byrne. Every week, I talk to inspiring social entrepreneurs and changemakers dedicated to building a better world. Here, they tell their stories, the highs and the lows, and share what they have learned to help other social entrepreneurs and changemakers on their journeys.
1: But I think social entrepreneurship actually shows us that you can create enterprises that simultaneously create wealth, create jobs, and can build the economy, which is of course critical for human well-being, but can also solve social problems, solve environmental problems, and be responsible stewards of the planet that we live on. The planet's most wicked problems won't fundamentally be solved by any individual sector, that government, corporations, and social entrepreneurs are the most promising triad to solve these wicked problems, that they together bring the right mix of resources, creativity, innovation, scalability. And so I think Verb actually is well-suited to be a kind of platform that these kinds of players can come together.
0: I'm very pleased today to introduce Susie Souza. Susie is co founder and CEO of Verb, a social enterprise that produces innovative competitions for social entrepreneurs who are working towards bringing disruptive innovation to the world's most wicked problems. Susie started Verb in partnership with Fortune 500 companies, foundations, and governments. Verb's clients include Dell, the Livestrong Foundation, and Whole Planet Foundation, a non profit established by Whole Foods Markets. Hi, Susie. Thank you very much for taking the time to speak to Inspiring Social Entrepreneurs. It's an honor to speak to you, and I'm looking forward to hearing about your journey and experiences. And maybe you can tell us a little bit about what you do today, and then maybe we can explore a little bit of the journey and how you got here.
1: Yes. Thank you so much for having me. Uh, It's really a pleasure to be here with you. I'm the co-founder and CEO of Verb, We're a company based in Austin, Texas, and we run massive social entrepreneurship competitions. So our clients are usually um, international corporations or large foundations, and they commission us to organize and operate social enterprise or social entrepreneurship competitions on whatever topic is most important to them. So Almost all of these um, organizations, companies have a social issue that's kind of their thing, whether it's education, water, empowering women. And so those are the topics that we organize our competitions around. And I've been doing this now for, um, I guess, about eight years, and I've had about 10,000 social entrepreneurs uh, come through all of our competitions.
0: Wow, that's an amazing number. You have had a rich journey, I think, and been involved in in various initiatives. Can you tell me a little bit about how you actually got involved in the whole field of social entrepreneurship in the first place, and maybe some of the things that you've done on your journey?
1: Absolutely. You know, um, it was definitely a circuitous path. Uh, I started off in um, my education. I went to school for public administration. I thought that um, going into government was how I could have the most impact. And my first day of work in the U.S. federal government was um, September 10th, 2001. So it was a very auspicious time uh, with September 11th, of course, following the day after. Um, And it was a a kind of discouraging time to be in government um, thinking about solving social issues. And a few months later, actually, um, I was living in Austin, Texas, where I had been assigned um, in the Department of Commerce. I ran into um, someone I knew from university who had started a dot-com company uh, called NetSpend. And they were making prepaid debit cards. They were one of the very first prepaid debit card companies um, in the United States. And what blew my mind about that company was that they were actually solving a social problem that the government had been struggling to solve, which is how to help poor and working class families with um, month-to-month budget and money management. And these prepaid debit cards were were actually replacing things like check cashing and payday lending in the United States. And so for me, NetSpend was the very first model I ever saw of a business being more effective at solving a social problem than government. So I quit my job in the US government and I became fascinated with this question of how could we take the best of the government and NGO world and the best of the business world and fuse them together and I didn't have a term for it. It wasn't until I went to the SOCAP conference in 2006 uh, before I even knew what the word social entrepreneurship was, but in 2010 the University of Texas actually asked me to come and create the first ever social entrepreneurship program inside the University of Texas in Austin. Uh, And in doing that was when I got connected to competitions. So one of the things I was asked to run was a university social entrepreneurship competition called the Dell Social Innovation Challenge. And that became the largest competition for student social entrepreneurs. And it was through that that I really saw the power of competitions to be able to provide support support, capital, mentorship, and overall acceleration to thousands of entrepreneurs at the same time. So I, excuse me, so I fell in love with uh, that kind of model. And um, by 2013, the university said, you know, why don't you spin this out? You know, you can have so much more impact Uh, working with more companies and more partners and so that's what we did and so we created we went from being a university-based program to becoming verb
0: great and what do you think is it that's distinctive about competitions why are they so powerful in your view
1: well i think in the um, social innovation world we've seen two parts of the spectrum so on one hand we've seen a lot of crowdsourcing platforms or open innovation platforms where, you know, people put in a whole bunch of ideas. um, And it's really great for sourcing a large variety of ideas, but there's really no emphasis on implementation. And then on the other hand, we see the accelerator world and you think about um, you know, social enterprise accelerators where they might bring in 10 or 15 social entrepreneurs and work with them for a few weeks or a few months. And so, you know, the trouble with that is, yes, it's very deep support, but it's such a small number of entrepreneurs. What's exciting about competitions um, is that you can actually provide capacity building and support services to hundreds, if not thousands of entrepreneurs all at this time same time the best way to think about this is the corollaries that we know already from sports so if you think about tennis or golf um, these are all sports that um, revolve around tournaments and competitions and the athletes use those to motivate them to you know improve their skill. It also helps them benchmark uh, how they're doing against other athletes. It also mobilizes um, fans, spectators, sponsors, all these kinds of resources around the athletes that otherwise wouldn't know them. And so I think... Um, our competitions are taking a lot of the same, um, you know, attributes that we see in the, the athletics world and the sports world and now um, bringing them to the benefit of social entrepreneurs.
0: And what do you think that's most interesting about social entrepreneurship itself? Why do you think it's such a powerful movement and vehicle for social change?
1: I really do believe that social entrepreneurship is the beginning of reframing capitalism. Uh, I think, you know, we saw at the end of the 20th century this global identity crisis as communism became discredited. It was everyone sort of thought aghast, you know, oh, my gosh, now all we're left with is um, the current model of Western capitalism. And there's many reasons to be concerned about that because of its its reputation, its history. But I think social entrepreneurship actually shows us that you can Create enterprises that simultaneously create wealth, create jobs, um, and can build the economy, which is of course critical uh, for human well-being. But can also solve social problems, uh, solve environmental problems, and be responsible stewards of the planet that we live on. Uh, one of the you know uh, comparisons that I make is I say, you know, that social entrepreneurship is just like you know, if building a company is like solving the Rubik's Cube, social entrepreneurship is just solving another face. It's just, you know, adding one more um, component. When an entrepreneur starts a company, you have to figure out, you know, is your product any good? Is your price any good? Does your distribution work? Do you have a good team? Those are all different faces on the cube. Having social impact is one more face. So it's harder. Yes, it is harder. But it's the next frontier. It's what we need, you know, as a as a planet as a humanity to be able to live here sustainably and provide you know a a reasonable quality of life for the billions of people on this planet
0: yeah absolutely i'm a big believer in social entrepreneurship as well it's broad church at the moment with so many different styles and you know Organization forms, non profit It's very innovative. I think a lot happening, as you have suggested. The competition sounds, as you say, a, a, a interesting way to reach out to a broader group of social entrepreneurs than maybe the the accelerators and, and provide a deeper kind of hands-on support to a broader group. I suppose maybe not as deep as, as as that hand-holding in an accelerator. What kind of things do you, in general, in in these competitions? What kind of support do they provide, and over what kind of time frame?
1: So we um, are constantly, you know, improving on this model and refining the model as we work with social entrepreneurs. Right now, the support. Um comes in, in a few different forms. So the first one is the way we actually design the competition itself. Uh, so we always design multi-year competitions, which I think is really critical, so that the entrepreneurs um, are engaging with us and receiving support over ideally you know, three to five years. The Dell Social Innovation Challenge ran for seven years. Um, which means that they can, the entrepreneurs can get access to small amounts of support over a much longer period of time. And so, you know, again, I think about um, health and wellness. If you are going to try to lose weight, are you more likely to keep the weight off um, permanently if you go to a six-week weight loss boot camp? Or if you work with um, you know, a wellness advisor you know, every month for three years. So the duration of these competitions and, and the repetition of them, I think, is a critical component. Um, included in that is what we ask for. So we're constantly honing in on how to ask questions, make uh, you know the requirements of the competitions something useful. So for example, in the Dell Social Innovation Challenge, we always ask the social entrepreneurs, What is your innovation? Who gains the most? Who pays? What is success? And how will you get there? And then we broke those questions down into sub questions to help the entrepreneurs think through, well, what is my innovation? Why is it innovative? Who gains the most? Who are my customer segments? How do they benefit? What's the pain point that I'm solving? In terms of who pays, you know, you can't just say customers or donors. You have to think, well, who's really going to pay for this? And how much are they going to pay? And is that price going to be enough to cover my costs? So by really designing the competition questions in a thoughtful way, it helps the entrepreneurs to think about their ventures uh, in a new way. We also, another key trait of our models is that every single semifinalist team gets matched with an individual mentor. So our clients, part of what they bring to the partnership is their employees and their stakeholders are the mentors and judges in the competition. So with Dell, we had 3,000 Dell employees from around the world who volunteered as judges and mentors. And our big competition last year, which was a partnership with the Livestrong Foundation and focused on improving the lives of cancer survivors, Livestrong tapped into their network of over a million cancer survivors and they were the mentors for the social entrepreneurs. So imagine you're a social entrepreneur who's just invented a new product uh, for cancer patients. What a what a Privilege it is to have an actual cancer survivor coming in as your mentor and helping you, you know, get access to other potential customers for user research um, and really guiding you. So mentorship um, is a key part of it. That mentorship um, actually continues beyond the competition. We work with a lot of teams um, at, after the competitions on things like helping them with pitches, which is something that we hear consistently. They need support on how to design a great pitch deck, um, how to actually do, you know. Different different lengths and different types of pitches, um, and then other services, things like um, talent acquisition, so if they need help finding senior executive management um, or branding or legal support. So our continuum of support is through, throughout the entire competition because our primary social impact metric for Verb is the um, survivability of all these social enterprises and the ultimate impact they make.
0: Yeah, that's really interesting that you're looking at that. What kind of measures do you have? I mean, what's your sense of how you're doing at the moment, the number of firms that, you know, social entrepreneurs that you've helped and, and how they're faring?
1: Yeah, well, I'm very proud that of um, our finalist teams, so we typically have uh, five to 10 finalist teams per competition, Um, and so, you know, over the past eight years now, we've had over a hundred of those, all but, you know, less, I think it's less than five that are, uh, have ha, are no longer in existence so we have you know 95 plus percent uh you know survivability of our finalist teams um and of course as you go backward you know from the finalists to the semi-finalists um the mortality rate starts to go up and that's what i'm interested in over the long run is thinking about how do we start to get deeper into the pool helping you know ventures that have more to learn um you know Uh, and more of them. But I think generally, um, you know, I've been very pleased with the results we have. Some of the great ventures that have come out of our competitions include Husk Power, which has now become very well known uh, globally as a top social enterprise. Um, Embrace, Shining Hope for Communities, Sword and Plow. Um, These are Jerry the Bear, which was just featured at the U.S. White House with President Obama, Sproutel is the name of their venture. Um, So we've had a number of really outstanding ventures um, that have come through our competitions and, you know, and are flourishing today. Uh, One story, actually, that I'd love to tell is um, the social enterprise called Sword and Plow. So they're based in the United States. They make um, accessories from discarded materials, military surplus, and And the accessories are made by uh, military veterans in their company. And I think it's a great story of our potential impact because they entered the Dell Social Innovation Challenge over multiple years. And in the very first year, their idea was not formed enough to qualify for any funding, even the smallest grants. But we saw potential in what they had together, the founding team, their daughters of a military military general, one of them actually served in in Afghanistan, so they were really close to the problem and very motivated to find a solution. So we actually invited them to participate in a summer-long accelerator that we organized that year, where they worked on their idea a lot. They entered the competition again the next year, and actually they were selected. Uh, for funding. And then that year we also had a partnership with Tom Shoes. Or Tom's wanted to be connected to a small set of social enterprises that they thought they could provide mentorship and support to. So we were able to connect Sword and Plow, which at the time, you know, they only had a couple of prototypes, they didn't even have a product in market, to Tom Shoes. Um, and one of the employees at Tom Shoes became their long-term mentor, and I believe joined the board of the organization. And so, of course, Tom Shoes had Deep expertise in supply chain and product manufacturing and Branding. And so their mentor helped them with all of these issues. They got on Fox News. They won the Harvard Social Enterprise Pitch Competition. They did a Kickstarter campaign and raised, I believe, over $300,000. And now their product is in market. And for a time, Tom Shoes was actually selling Sword and Plows accessories on the Tom Shoes website and marketplace. Um, And I think it's a great case study how two social entrepreneurs with a lot of passion and a kind of kernel of an idea. Yeah were able to get multi-year support and all these different kind of contacts and introductions through the Dell Social Innovation Challenge and through Verb that they wouldn't otherwise have, and they were able to go from idea to in market in the span of four years, which I would argue is much faster than they would have been able to do on their own.
0: That's a brilliant story. It's a great success story. Quite a result. When you think about it, I suppose, I guess there's a, a risk in if you're, you know, open your doors to you know the best ideas at there, that let's say you get in a particular arena, you know, 10 superb ideas. You know, to what extent is there a risk that these are, you know, organizations that would be successful in any case? I'm just wondering about the value added, how you look at that. And as you say, you know, you're, you're, one of your interests is to go to the next group, maybe the semi finalists and beyond that. You know, how do you see that?
1: I you know, I used to get asked a lot when I was in the university teaching social entrepreneurship. Many pe many skeptics would say, Can you really teach entrepreneurship? you know, all the great legends, you know, if you think about Steve Jobs and Michael Dell and Bill Gates and, you know, the list goes on and on. One of the hallmarks is they dropped out of university, you know, Mark Zuckerberg, you know, you you pretty much you name it. Um and, and of course Peter Thiel um had his Thiel Fellows where he was offering a hundred thousand dollars for university students to drop out and start a a, a business. And so there's a lot of cynicism uh, about skepticism about whether you can really teach uh, entrepreneurship, but I I have seen firsthand that absolutely you can. And again, you know, I'm sorry to continue be repetitive on the same analogy, but I think it has a lot in common with um, with sports, you know, or or with even music. You know, can you teach someone to be a better musician? Well, sure. Some people are born with incredible talents and maybe some few athletes like Michael Phelps, you know, can jump in the pool and, and really not need so much training and be an Olympian or be, you know, a concert pianist. But there are so many people that are born with quite a bit of aptitude and with really excellent coaching and with practice um, and with competition and training can get a lot better and that's our real interest at verb so our purpose statement is to mobilize an army of entrepreneurs to solve our planet's most wicked problems yeah so yes you do have this elite you've got the top one percent uh with so much talent and already perhaps the the networks and the resources to be successful. But I believe there are, you know, a million potential social entrepreneurs out there that don't have all of that, but who could be very, very, very successful um, and could significantly scale their impact if they had the right resources, the right training, you know, and the right support.
0: No, I think that's right. And I think it shouldn't be different from any other area. I mean, the nature of the complexity of it is probably more than if you're setting up a restaurant or you're, you know, setting up a straightforward. Forward for-profit business which is challenging in itself and this extra dimension. I understand you were involved in the University of Texas and developing uh, courses in social entrepreneurship. What do you think are the, the key areas that social entrepreneurs need to be supported in terms of you know learning and becoming better social entrepreneurs? are there a few key areas that you think in, in your experience?
1: Yes uh, the number one thing we've observed is that social entrepreneurs need support to find distribution channels. And it's a bit um, of a surprise to some people because everybody thinks the big obstacle is lack of funding or lack of access to funding, but we find actually no social entrepreneurs need access to customers. And if they can get access to customers, number one, it helps them to refine their offering. And by customers, it could also be a nonprofit client. But they need people to offer their product or service to. And they they need to be able to find them in large numbers at relatively low cost. Um, And once they do that, they can test, you know, is my product any good? Is my program any good? Um, And with that feedback, refine their offering. Once their offering is reasonable um, and they have some distribution, the fun Funding always shows up. In fact, I believe there's a surplus of funding available. Um, and so I think the, the, the biggest leverage point that we have to help social entrepreneurs is to help them get to the point of being in market with distribution. And so, for example, um, thinking about, well, who are potential partners for them, um, helping them design pilot tests, um, helping them really think about pricing um, and costs. Uh, that, I think, is where we can have the, the greatest potential leverage um, for, to, to scale more social entrepreneurs.
0: I spoke to a few social entrepreneurs recently who, and this theme came up about this pilot at the pilot stage and just how time consuming and challenging this is at the very early stage, getting a pilot scheme, proving, testing, showing that you've got, you know, a market there and that, you know, that I guess it's viable. What's your thoughts on that, uh, working with social entrepreneurs? You know, are, are there any resources targeted at that particular stage, the very early stage? I mean, I spoke to somebody very, very, experienced in the healthcare area really struggled for you know a couple of years at the beginning you know a lot of experience He was very capable and some very good people with him but just you know proving that this was viable and 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 getting support for that
1: yeah i think that's a this is exactly the area where burb um, can have a lot of impact because the reality is that ventures need um sort of um uh, I'm going to call it free capital uh, to run these pilots, meaning that it's not reasonable to expect them to do an equity round um, or take debt to do a pilot. Right. They're not ready to take on that amount of risk. And so um, in the social enterprise space, you know, I believe that the best kind of capital to fund these pilots is going to be, you um, philanthropic grant capital, um, or prize money from things like competitions. Uh, so I think this is exactly an area where verb, um, and others in our, um, network can have a powerful impact because if we can try to direct more capital on, you know, capital that doesn't have any strings attached, um, to this pilot stage um, and help more social entrepreneurs do a viable demonstration case, then they can graduate on to things like angel investors or seed rounds or eventually A rounds. Um, and I think some of it may just be branding and messaging. I mean, we've seen a lot of success in talking with investors and saying we're looking for money to help fund pilots and demonstration cases among social entrepreneurs, and, and that's very concrete, and they can really see the potential benefit and the impact of doing that, um, and it's just, it's funny, because um, it's, you know, if you call it startup capital, <clears throat> excuse me, if you call it startup capital, for some reason, everybody feels like that's risky and has a greater chance of being sort of thrown away with no end, whereas if we call it, you um, capital for pilots and demonstration cases, and there's a really clear, um, you know, articulation of what it's going to be used for, a lot of these early funders get excited about that. So I hope that's an area where Verb can um, bring a lot of value on this global scene.
0: Well, I hope so, because my experience talking to recently is that this is a very challenging area. I I was surprised. I mean, when it's somebody from a new inexperienced person, you know, who's starting out when it's somebody who's got a lot more experience and it's getting this message, it seems to be you know, a gap at the moment and the kind of work you're doing clearly will help there. But it seems to be such a vital hurdle for social entrepreneurs.
1: And for the democratization of social impact, so that's another you know kind of concept that my team is very focused on. Is right now a lot of social entrepreneurship has been concentrated in affluent communities. Who you know, it's it's wonderful that they're motivated to give back and launch ventures in uh, other parts of the world. But we would like to see social more social entrepreneurs coming directly from those communities. But those are individuals that have even less. Access to resources. So um, I think you know, figuring out this democratization of capital and democratization of social impact, where individuals and communities can be empowered to build these things themselves, and not have to wait for a very well-meaning white person to come, you know, on a summer, uh, you know, summer excursion. Um, I think you know that's where we all want to
0: be. Absolutely, absolutely. What's your vision for Verb and going forward? I mean, I mean, how big a market is there for competitions? Just looking at, it, I guess, on the supply side from, for you know organizations, companies, people like Dell that want to support social entrepreneurs. The whole question of competitions is is quite an interesting one because you know there's things like the SpaceX and you know it's a relatively new and growing phenomenon. The competitions to attract resources and so forth
1: yeah you know we have been surprised even ourselves at the um, interest and excitement for competitions, and I do feel lucky to sort of be in the right place at the right time. What's happened with us, actually, just in the past year, is we've expanded our portfolio and the kind of models of competitions that we run significantly. So we started with this model that's now called the Grand Challenge, uh, you know, which is what the Dell Social Innovation Challenge was, and the Live, Live Strong Big C Challenge, um, the Gates Foundation, um, and you know, DFID and USAID all run grand challenges on different social issues. But now, uh, this year, we actually um, we're, were selected to run what we're calling a breakthrough prize. So we're running a $10 million science prize for the Everglades Foundation, uh, which is focused on finding a technology to remove excess phosphorus from freshwater bodies where it's causing algae blooms that are um, seriously threatening these ecosystems. And so this is more like an XPRIZE model where you're going to have one winner capturing a very high dollar um, prize uh, and you're really pushing a technology advancement and a kind of industry innovation. So that's a different model for us. Uh, We're also launching this fall a, a social innovation competition inside of a hospital and so the doctors and nurses are the ones that will be um, coming up with innovative ideas to improve patient outcomes so that's another kind of different model where we're bringing the concepts and the approaches of social entrepreneurial thinking to professionals Um, so it's really exciting for us to see um, you know the breadth of what we can offer expanding and I think our you know core value proposition is that we understand both, both sides of this. So we really you know, deeply care about the social entrepreneurs. That's our primary mission. But we also see how these large partners, these corporations, corporate foundations, hospitals, can be tremendous partners for social entrepreneurs. Um, and I see VERB as kind of this um, bridge, as a platform to connect these two worlds in a way that can be really um, productive for everybody.
0: That's interesting. Can you tell me a little bit more about that, that potential for them to work together, why you see this as being such an exciting possibility?
1: Well, one of my, um, you know, inspirations is a book by William Eggers called The Solution Economy. And in this book, you know, he's talking about how, you know, the the planet's most wicked problems will not, fundamentally be solved by any individual sector, that government, corporations, and social entrepreneurs are the most promising triad uh, to, um, to solve these wicked problems, that they together bring the right mix of, you know, resources, creativity, innovation, scalability. And, and so I think Verb actually is well-suited to, to be a kind of platform Um, that these kinds of players can come together. So another example is a global competition we will be launching in January with a very large uh, financial institution with their corporate foundation. And so they have a mission of, um, you know, improving financial access and financial inclusion around the world. But it's very difficult for them to do that directly. And so They've asked us to help them find the top social entrepreneurs in all these markets where they do business. So we'll be running this competition in 11 countries and 8 languages over a 3-year time frame and helping this major financial institution partner with these top social entrepreneurs in the realm of financial inclusion. Um, and once we find them, of course, the hope is that together with this big financial institution, we can find the local and regional partners to help those social enterprises scale, which might very well be um, government or other NGO partners. So I think um, that's a great example of how verb we can sort of be this platform and, in, and a sort of Um, intermediary that connects, you know, thousands of social entrepreneurs to single big institutions um, in an efficient way.
0: Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. And I should have asked this earlier, what makes a good competition?
1: <laughs> we actually have a you know kind of a a few bullets on this we it, it's something that we have a theory you know a theory on a point of view on um number 1 is um you know it must be multi year so we believe that single year competitions really don't do much to advance the ecosystem um, two, it has to take a stakeholder approach. So it really needs to be um, engaging multiple stakeholders from the ecosystem that you're trying to affect um, and including them uh, in meaningful ways. You know, we believe that um, competitions can help accelerate an ecosystem, say, around empowering women and girls, partly by helping to build social capital. Among the key stakeholders. So, you know, if you think about the um, corporations interested in this, the NGOs that are interested in this, the social entrepreneurs that are interested in this, um, other think tanks, uh, researchers, we really push our clients to invest the money in the stakeholder activation and stakeholder engagement. Um, so, those are two key principles uh, for us. And then How you frame the problem um, is also really important. So, you know, we try to guide our clients to design competitions that are broad enough to bring in um, a diversity of entrepreneurs, a diversity of ideas, um, but that are specific enough to be, you know, clear and motivating and achieve a measurable outcome.
0: When you talk about social capital, can you give me some examples or an example of where you would focus or, you know, how that works? I I get the idea generally. I'm just interested in, in specific. Yeah. Yeah.
1: Absolutely. So last year, we ran a competition called the Big C for the Livestrong Foundation focused on um, improving the lives of cancer survivors. And it was so interesting, because, you know, Livestrong is a very well known organization. And, you know, they sort of said to us, well, you know, we sort of feel like we already know everyone in this space, but we're actually able to help them bring together, um, you know, medical startup accelerators, so there's a lot of med tech accelerators um, that they were not very close to, Um, other angel funds and angel investors that were focused specifically on healthcare and in the medical space, Um, some new uh, folks from uh, hospitals, oncologists, and so we used um, our verbs network to bring in, um, you know, innovative partners like Ted Med, for example, uh, where Livestrong didn't have um, existing relationships. And so through the competition, we included these individuals in different roles. So sometimes they were um, accelerator mentors, uh, they were um, content experts, they were final judges. And what was really interesting was that these people who were all participating in this, most of them had never met each other before even though they are all share this very, um, you know, sort of narrow common interest of improving the lives of cancer survivors. They had heard of each other, but they had never met. And because they were all participating in, let's say the accelerator, I mean, they were all participating in the accelerator as mentors together. They were becoming friends and they were interacting on a weekly basis. They were talking, they were talking about their experiences with the social entrepreneurs, but they were also talking about other things. Um, and so we've seen that that builds a, what, you know, we would call social capital, a kind of trust and a camaraderie between these different players in the ecosystem that didn't exist before. And so our hypothesis, our theory of change, is that we can help to make the cancer innovation ecosystem around the lives of cancer survivors more effective and more efficient if we can connect these individual players who live in different cities and work in different organizations. Um, But if they know each other, they can help You know, not just with startup acceleration, but with all kinds of innovation.
0: Well, I think that's really interesting because I think, as you say, the focus on the ecosystem is a very powerful and necessary way to support social entrepreneurs. i just wondering, the way you talk about it there, it's clearly you're very aware of that and that relationship. I just think that resources to support the ongoing growth of these relationships would be very valuable as well, because, as you say, a competition in its own, you know, uh, certainly multi-year will help that. But having that as a clear objective to build those ecosystems in themselves, you know, must be very valuable as well.
1: Yeah. One of the models I really admire, um, it's another group running competitions that, um, you know, we, we know them. It's uh, a group called LEAP, uh, L-E-A-P, and it's a consortium of uh, NASA, the State Department, U.S. State Department, USAID, and Nike. Um, and they've been running a series of competitions over the past five years focused mostly on um, science and environmental issues, technology issues, and they really emphasize, um, you know, stakeholder and ecosystem, uh, you know, enhancement. And they actually combine the competition with in-person gatherings. Yeah. So they start off with a convening um, where all these experts gather together to talk about what needs to be improved, and then they jump into the competition, and then they convene again at the end of the competition. So I think that's something, um, you know, we're looking to learn from and, um, and possibly partner with Leap is thinking about how do we take, you know, both an online and an offline approach um, to these competitions because of the importance of building these relationships in the ecosystem.
0: Tell me how you funded uh, the organization and how that's changed over time. So we, when I started for, uh, we
2: actually spun out of the university of Texas at Austin. And so, um, I had an idea that had some history and traction, even though it was, um, you know, only in its first time as a for-profit business model. So my co-founder and I, we, we self-funded, uh, in the beginning. And then, uh, he also, um, Offered some convertible debt. So we began the business with um, a few hundred thousand dollars of convertible debt, uh, which was a very useful tool for various reasons. I'm happy to go into um, if that's helpful. And then we we were able to secure some customers quite quickly. So for the first year, um, we made it most of the way on our convertible debt and the revenue from our customers. Unfortunately, We lost one of our customers, uh, in the middle of that, uh, first year. And so, um, we ran out of money again, um, and I had to take a few bridge loans from some friends uh, and then decided to raise capital, that we, we just weren't going to be able to build the infrastructure and, you know, qu- quality of product that we needed to be able to scale. Uh, and it was at that time that I raised um, an additional $1.8 million of, um, you know, equity, uh, uh, an equity round um, on top of the convertible debt.
0: Right, you raised quite a bit of capital, really. The convertible debt. what made you think of that, and do you think that's a good option for other social entrepreneurs and why? Yes, I think convertible debt is a fantastic tool for starting a for profit social enterprise so um the way convertible debt works, uh, as you know,
2: you know, you, you get a note, um, but the note has the option to be converted into equity at your next round. And when you do an equity round, the the main sticking point is what is the valuation of the company going to be? Um, and for an early stage company, it's very difficult to determine a value. Um, in fact, you know, sometimes I've even. Observe that companies that have no revenue and no customers are able to um, achieve higher valuations than those that do have revenue and customers because it's all imaginary. Um, But, you know, like selling your house on the market or anything else, you know, you don't really know what a fair price is because there's no house exactly like your own. With convertible debt, the reason that it's a great tool is because you don't have to set the price uh, when you receive the capital. The the value of the company gets set in the round, and so the the you know for example, you know if I took five hundred thousand dollars of convertible debt, um, and then later you know my company is worth five million dollars. Now you know what fraction of the company that debt uh, is actually worth. But when I'm taking the five hundred thousand, maybe I don't know what the valuation is. And in my case, it was my co-founder who was funding the convertible debt. And we didn't really want to be arguing between us uh, what the value of the company should be because in, from his point of view, he would be incentivized for the value to be lower because yes. his convertible would be worth more. And, of course, I wanted it to be higher. We didn't want to get into that argument with each other, so we just agreed, we'll do it as convertible debt, and then when we closed our first round, Whenever that may be, um, he would convert it into equity at the the uh, agreed upon price of the round.
0: That's interesting. Yeah, that's always a tricky one when those, like you say, partners at the beginning, um, and I guess crucially important to have to have it be aligned in terms of what you're looking for and how you see things. I guess as well. That's right, and it's so hard to. Place a value on something that's so
2: early because you're, um, of course, you know you don't. You may not have any revenue, you may not have any customers, but you have a lot of potential, and you may have IP and you may have other assets. And so, um, and there's since there's nothing comparable, it's not like you could look out in the world and um, you know get comps. So uh, convertible debt is a really nice tool to unlock a, a significant amount of capital more than you would likely get from angel investors, um, but. No-
0: not having to face this difficult question of what's the value of the company. That's very interesting. That's very interesting. Excellent. So it became apparent then that you would need to raise, you know, it would be wise to raise a significant sum of money, I guess, to build up the capacities, the infrastructure and so forth for for the business. So what was your first thought on how you would do this and what actually happened? So, yes, when I decided it was time to raise capital, the, the tricky question is how much should you
2: raise? And again, this is all an art uh, because it depends, you know, the amount that you raise is the numerator of a fraction that has the val- the, the valuation of your company as the denominator. And so that's going to determine how much of your company are you giving away. And uh, so there's a little bit of a, you know, a calculation that you're doing and you're saying, well, I think I need a million dollars, but if my company is only worth two million dollars right now. You know, do I really want to give away fifty percent? You know, about fifty percent um, of my company. Um, and so, um, it's actually the, the formula doesn't work exactly like that, but it's the right way to think about it. And so then you say, well, what's the minimum amount of capital that I can take um, to get to where I need to be, where I'm not giving up more of my company than I want to? So in my case, I've, I actually, I didn't have any customers at the time, but I had had past customers. So um, when I first started fundraising, I said that I thought my company was worth about $5 million, um, and I wanted to raise uh, an additional $1.5 million. dollars, And as I went around to investors with my pitch deck, um, they said, well, what's the basis of your suggestion that the company is worth $5 million? And I started to give them my explanation, and, and many of them didn't buy it. And they said, no, you know, you don't have any customers right now, and uh, you don't have any projected for the next year, so we think that's too high. So then I had to go back to the drawing board because I had the choice of either continuing on making pitches at a $5 million dollar valuation and potentially have investors say, No, that's too high but I really needed the capital. I you know, I, I couldn't even make payroll really and so I came back and I said, Okay I changed my valuation to $4 million. And again, this is very much a sort of art, not a science. There's no way to really uh, validate it. So then my investor said, oh, yeah, that sounds very attractive. Actually, we think that's, you know, that sounds like a good deal. And at, and actually, at the time, I had a, cu- a couple of customers that were in progress, and so I had revenue that was, um, you know, highest probability of coming in. Um, So as I started fundraising, my goal was to raise $1.5 million on a $4 million valuation, and I raised it extremely quickly. So I had it in 60 days. I had raised all my money, and in fact, I had a line of other investors that wanted to um, invest as well, even though I had reached my cap. And then I said, well, gosh, obviously I've underpriced my company because if everybody wants to get in, then I've obviously priced it too low. They see that this is a bargain. So I went back to my initial investors, those who had put in for the 1.5, and I said, "Um, you know, I have more demand um, to come into this round, so I'm going to raise the price. Uh, And so I went back and I told them "Um, I'm going to increase the value of the company to 45 million and if any of you don't want that then you can get out of the round because I have other people that would like to come in um, and of course it's you know there's the law of the, the jungle when they saw that there was so much demand to come in nobody wanted to get out so yes, I was yes. just able <laughs> Yeah, it's, it's funny, isn't it? When, when no one wants
0: to come in, no one wants to come in. And when everyone wants to come in, everyone wants to come in. Well, yes, um, those investors are very rational. Professional investors like that, all very <laughs> rational. <laughs> exactly. Clearly, you mentioned, you know, the question of how much to give away is a big question. I'm interested, you know, as a social entrepreneur, a lot of social entrepreneurs I talk to, and they are in varying degree for profit and not for profit, varying degree dealing with, you know, more commercial or more wicked social problems, shall we say. How did that affect the fundraising for you, the fact that you're a social entrepreneur and so forth? And literally, how did you canvas and build up such a deep investor base?
2: I think it was helpful, and I have some, I have actually two uh, philanthropic foundations that invested in Verb. So I, that capital, I would not have been able to access if I had not been a social enterprise. So uh, they were making um, program-related investments into Verb, um, and I would say my investors fall on a spectrum from from those foundations who are very philanthropically motivated and impact motivated to individuals who were kind of 50/50. They like the impact and they like the potential for financial. Return. And I have some who are just classical investors um, who are not really especially interested in, in the return. So I think it was helpful. I would say that um, the most helpful thing in my fundraising was that I had built a lot of social capital in Austin uh, over the past 15 years, um, you know, doing a lot of volunteer work, serving on boards, building relationships, so that when I was out raising capital, a lot of influential people already knew me, um, and that's some, one of the pieces of advice that I give to entrepreneurs. A lot of times you think those kinds of service opportunities are what you would do later in life, but actually by by serving on boards and serving on committees and volunteering for galas, I became friends with a lot of um, very wealthy individuals in the Austin community, and that ended up serving me very well. Um, they, they were not all of my investors, but they gave me introductions, and they, they vouched for me and
0: they endorsed me and gave me legitimacy and credibility with the individuals that I was approaching. That sounds like a very good idea and clearly the sooner the better in terms of building these relationships over time. What about foundations? I've heard various things about, various feedback from different entrepreneurs, social entrepreneurs. They've had different experiences. Some have had, had very good experiences, some more mixed. And I guess there are a lot of different foundations out there. What are your insights into how to approach looking for money from foundations? Well, I think it's extremely difficult to get capital from foundations in general.
2: There's very of them and they're much more risk averse uh, than individuals and family offices Um, so I I don't think you know even though they're so mission aligned um, and and there's the greatest alignment there that finding you know any foundations to begin with and then finding ones that are willing to do a program related investment and then finding ones that are willing to invest in your high risk social enterprise startup um, is a very very low probability and the two foundations that invested in Verb, I had um, relationships with the the original source of the wealth, right? So not just the executive
0: director, but the the actual um, the entrepreneurs. So. I think foundations sound in, in, you know, in concept like, oh, that would
2: be a wonderful investor, but I think um, it's very difficult to find them and also to convince them to invest. Hopefully that will change more and more are getting interested in this. But for where we are, uh, you know, at this stage in time, I think um, you'd be better off looking for individual angel investors
0: or family offices that are interested in impact investing uh, than foundations. That's very interesting family offices. I've not spoken to anybody who's had any experience raising money from family offices. Again, probably different courses. But generally, what would you say about trying to raise money from family offices?
2: are excellent candidates for impact investing. So, especially if you're trying to raise, um, you know, kind of a, a bigger seed round. That this is bigger than angel investing. So, family offices have the capability to write a 50000 fifty thousand, one hundred thousand, you know, sometimes even up to half a million dollar um, check. So, um, you know, nobody really has a family office unless they're worth several million dollars. Um, and some high net worth individuals. Um, join up and have a family office together, um, but, you know, this, these are still individuals that are primarily making the decisions, but they are, they have so much wealth that they have their own private, you know, team to manage it, so I think family offices um, are excellent candidates for seed rounds, and, um, and, and there are networks of family offices, so there are conferences that they all attend, and there are, you know, networks of them, so, you know, if you identify out of the category and you start doing the research, um, you can find them fairly easily. And I, I think
0: that that's a much higher likelihood of success than focusing on foundations. That's very interesting that you say that. And what's their perspective compared to angels? I mean, you mentioned that different investors have different priority, I suppose, associated with the impact, the impact side of the investment, should we say. So what was your sense where they fitted in in the spectrum in terms of looking for financial reward and looking for impact? Well, the
2: individuals who run the operations. So usually it's the CFO or maybe it's the CEO of the family office. Oftentimes they manage their clients or you know the the entrepreneur. They manage both the philanthropic portfolio and the investment private equity portfolio. So you know they they have a perspective on both sides of the line and family offices tend to be a bit more entrepreneurial and innovative than foundations. So you know they're looking at trends almost all of them were familiar with the concept of impact investing, um, and so they were kind of curious to try it. The the only challenge, you know, compared to angels, with an angel investment, you're going directly to the individual, and you're forming a relationship. With a family office, you're usually pitching to the CEO of the family office, who's then carrying the message back to the original source of wealth um, and running it by them. So you have one more degree of separation, so your pitch needs to be a bit more polished and more professional because it's being vetted by a third party versus just you can use your charisma to wow an angel and they may never ask for financials um, but it'll be a little bit different with family offices but the family office
0: you know if you can really sell them they can write you you know a a pretty big check wow that's really helpful and and interesting information Uh, in terms then of the angel investors i guess who are a substantial part of the investor group that funded that 1.5 1.5 million round how many of them would you say were less interested in the financial side of it I mean and how many were shall we say driven primarily by the the idea of social impact I know that it can it can add a little bit of a flavor or, or it can be you know a big part of the motivation and I'm just wondering when it comes to the more social innovation side of things how important do you think that was or how many investors do you think that that was a really important part of the equation? 12 investors
2: around. Ended up being um, you know 2.3 million, with the 500,000 of that is convertible debt. So I have 1.8 million of new capital, and I have about 12 investors. And I think if you ask them to rank three things, so you could ask them to rank the priority between social impact, financial return, and believing in Susie. I'm pretty sure that almost all of them would say believing in Susie was number one. Then I think probably financial return would be the second most popular across all of them, and I think social impact would be the third, even though financial return and social impact are fairly close. So the the most important thing is that, you know, everyone invested because they believed in me, they trusted me, I, I was able to instill confidence in them, they felt that I really understood my business, that I had the, you know, the capabilities as a leader to figure it out, even if I didn't know exactly what I was doing, um, and then I think all of them, By the reason I say financial return is second is because none of them would have invested if they didn't think I had a viable business model that had the potential to generate some form of return um, at some point in the future. Now, no one set a timeline. No one set an expectation about the amount of return, but none of them would have invested if they didn't think that was there. And then I think the social impact was really what made it exciting for them. So they were looking at my investment compared to a lot of other technology startups, you know, in Austin and, and in California. And so they said, well, this is different, right? This is something that, you know, has a potential for huge scale and huge return, but also has this really great social mission. So I think it was a differentiator, you know, a competitive advantage, but nobody would have invested um, just for social impact, including the foundations, because they're investing out of their endowment, out of their corpus. So they want to know that, you know, the money at least is going to
0: come back. Um, this is not a grant. It's not philanthropy. That's really interesting. That's, that's, that's fascinating. I guess just one other question on this is, and it's not a place to be critical of social entrepreneurs. And I know some of the many social entrepreneurs, entrepreneurs, entrepreneurs find it challenging to to raise money and a lot of that's due to structural aspects of the market clearly attitudes risk awareness risk aversion certain categories of investors and so forth in terms of those elements that are in the hands of social entrepreneurs do you see a few things that maybe that might be a hurdle or obstacle to social entrepreneurs or a couple of things that you think that they would if they improved they did better would immeasurably help their fundraising is that there's
2: an abundance of capital, you know, you know I had an, an example where the, the, my round is oversubscribed, so I, mean, I had one investor at the very end call in and say, you know, I'd like to put in at least a million dollars. I said, I already have, you know, 1.6 and my round was 1.5 and so, you know, we settled on 350,000. We were settling on that because he wanted to put in a million um, and so um, I, I don't think capital is the barrier. I think that um, the barrier is we have to push ourselves to higher standards in terms of thinking about the business model, um, creating a vision that is you know sufficiently um, large to inspire investors. I think um, you know one of the things that helped me a lot was doing a lot of practice pitches and really listening to the feedback and being responsive and taking the coaching, which is always hard for CEOs. So, you know, I always say that building a business is like solving a Rubik's Cube, and you can give up after you've solved, you know, three or three faces or four faces, but you have to push yourself to go you know as far as you can. And I think you can push yourself to building a business that is very, you know, financially sustainable and scalable and has the potential for large impact. And if you're not there, if capital is not coming, it's because you're not there. And so keep working on the Rubik's Cube. Don't give up. Don't just write it off and say, well, you know, there's not enough capital. I think there's plenty of capital, um, but, you know, capital has certain features that it's looking for, and if you want that capital, then you need to keep iterating until you develop those features. So I think entrepreneurs should continue keep pitching and and get the feedback um, and really look at the business. Business model and, and really refine it. I mean, my very early investors. One of my first pitches, one one of the um, investors said, "Well, what's your no-brainer?" I gave him a blank there. I said, what do you mean, what's my no-brainer? He said, where's the slide that when you show it to a client, they say yes right away, because it's a no-brainer. And I didn't have that. I had never thought about my company and what we were offering from the perspective of a no-brainer for the customer. I had always pitched it on the impact story. And that was huge feedback. And it it shifted the way I was thinking about, one, what verb offers, and two, how I tell the story about it. So, you know, it took me about six weeks to figure out my no-brainer side, um, you know, and then another pitch, you know, one investor said, you know, tell me about Verb." and I said, well, you know, I moved to Austin in, you know, 2001, and his eyes glazed over, and I realized that my pitch was terrible, you know, I was getting into too much detail and telling too many things, and I didn't have the story straight, and so that kind of feedback, you know, I, I really observed, and I saw when investors were not interested or when they were disappointed. What was that about? Um, and I kept refining. And it, it really took me about four months to get my pitch deck. From the time I finished it, when I thought it was done, it took me another four months to actually get it to be good through a series of early pitches where I really bombed and the investors were like, no way. Um, but then I, I refined it. And, and then I got to a point where they would say, I don't even need to see the slides. You've got it.
0: You know what you're talking about. Yeah, I believe in you. Ah, that's great, Joe. And were they the same investors you went back to? And they were willing to listen to you again? You know, actually, no. So, none of in the beginning, um, I did
2: tell them, you know, hey, we only had some, you know, toward the end, like, you know, we only have a few slots left. Are you interested? Um, and actually, the funny part was one of the very first ones who said, I don't think your business can scale. A bunch of his friends decided to invest. Um, and they said, oh, come on, you should put some money in. And he said, I just don't think there's ever going to be an exit for this company. It's a service-based business. It's not a commodity. It'll never scale. And his friend said, You. No, no, come on, you should get in. So in the end, they threw in a token amount of money, um, you know, just because everybody else did. And then I ended up spending quite a bit more time with him. And he said to me, if you had pitched your company better, and I understood then what I understand now, I would have put in a lot more money. <laughs> so that was the only investor of the ones that said no in the beginning that ever came back in. But but it was testimony to the fact that my pitch was not very good. I was, you know, and it's a, it's a problem for founders because we're very Technical and we get really deep into the weeds, and it's often we struggle to explain the, the value proposition in a very simple terms that are easy for people to understand who are not from the domain, um, not from the industry, um, and I think
0: even I'm still bad at it. That's very interesting. Coming to the end now, we we could talk for quite a bit. It's fascinating what you're doing. One of the things that makes competitions attractive as well, and I think from the sponsor side of things, is the publicity and marketing. I mean, clearly, in terms of the... Getting access to the best ideas and all of that's wonderful, but also, you know, getting the message out there, creating some excitement and helping, you know, the organizations themselves get you know, into the news, but also presumably the sponsors have their own interest in that as well. How important is that and how do you do that?
1: Absolutely, it's essential. It really is. And I I do think that's been one of Verb's, you know, one of the pieces of our secret sauce is how well we understand branding and social media. Um, And we learned a lot of that through our partnership with Dell. You know, in many of our competitions, we achieve over 500 million social media impressions. And what's exciting for our clients about the, you know, the marketing reach uh, is actually it's a very um, it's an audience they want to get to. So we see a lot of millennials, um, a lot of young innovators, uh, global innovators that are excited about these kinds of initiatives. And so that's an audience uh, that our clients are really eager um, to talk to. And we're able to get excuse me. And we're able to get quite a high level of engagement with them. So it's not just that they read something about it and forget about it. On our platform, not only can social entrepreneurs create profiles, but spectators can create profiles too. So we're very much looking to build out the spectator and the fan experience um, around these competitions, exactly as you would see in a sports arena. And I tell my team, you know, sports arena is a very symbiotic ecosystem. So you have the players, you have the spectators, and you have the corporate sponsors. And they all need each other to make the ecosystem work Um, and I think that's how you know verb works is we have these incredible social entrepreneurs we have hundreds of thousands and hopefully eventually millions of spectators who care about these issues and are excited to support the social entrepreneurs and then we bring in um, you know corporate brands and and other partners who want to reach that whole audience um, in its entirety
0: I can see that the whole system, everybody working together and everybody has something to give and to share and also shared interests in in the outcome. It's great work. Great work. So thank you very much for taking the time. That's been uh, fascinating. And I wish you the very best of success with your work over the coming years. Thank
1: you so much.
0: Thank you for listening to the Inspiring Social Entrepreneur podcast. I hope you found this interview inspiring please make sure to visit www.inspiringsocialentrepreneurs.com and subscribe to make sure you don't miss any future podcasts.